0: Hello everyone and welcome to This Week in Engineering. I'm Jim Anderson, Multimedia Content Director at Engineering.com. On today's show, Elon Musk unveils a neural implant, AR-VR moves center stage in design and making fuel from wind, all This Week in Engineering. Imagine if you could control your smartphone, tablet, or laptop entirely by thought. Now this has been a staple of science fiction for decades, but Elon Musk's Neuralink enterprise well they've announced a breakthrough in this emerging technology. Andrew Wheeler has a story this week about a major announcement that might be the first real start in the race to mind control of technology on a widespread scale. Neuralink uses a custom IC the firm calls N1 connected to the brain with extremely small electrodes to create a working brain machine interface. The chip is encapsulated in a 4x8mm cylinder, which also contains an interface to accommodate up to 1024 electrodes. At the current stage of development, each hemisphere of the brain can accommodate 10 electrodes, so the system is obviously designed for growth. The N1 device takes analog brain signals, then filters and amplifies them before sending them to an AD converter. The plan for implantation of the device is well, it's daring. Neuralink will use autonomous robotics to perform the necessary neurosurgery using computer vision. This will make a 2-centimeter incision into which the machine will insert a needle containing a 5-micron electrode bundle the company calls a thread. The equipment will insert 6 threads per minute, with each thread containing 192 electrodes. In its test form, the implant communicates to the outside world using a USB-C connection and Bluetooth to an app on the user's smartphone. The system has been tested on rats and uses a wired connection to speed development. Now production devices will be entirely contained in the body, with percutaneous leads acting as antennae for data communications and likely for an inductive power system to charge batteries or simply power the device externally. And according to Neuralink, the plans go beyond reading brain activity but include delivering electrical stimulation to the brain, with possible applications including motor control and proprioception. Imagine a video game where you actually feel the environment around you. Now, development is advancing rapidly, with the firm unveiling a pig carrying the implant system, so testing in sophisticated human analogs is well underway. So, why do all this? Well, according to Elon Musk, the initial goal would be treatment of neurological disorders, but we have to wonder how people would use a technology that would let them interact with machines anywhere, anytime, just by thinking about them. A solution that matches the patient experience of laser eye surgery, that's the stated goal for the system, well, that'll require breakthroughs in robotic surgery and more research into the long term biocompatibility of the implants but the fact is that development is well into the hardware stage, and that's highly promising. We'll be thinking about this technology the old-fashioned way, and we'll report on it again as it develops. <music> Augmented reality and full-tilt virtual reality, well, it's been a sci-fi staple for years, but in the real world, it's taking hold of the engineering process from design office to the shop floor. Rupinder Tara has an overview of where this technology fits into the COVID and post-COVID world this week, and he spoke with senior executives from PTC, Autodesk, Siemens Software, Trimble, and Dassault Systems, and they report that AR and VR technology is not only further along than many in the engineering community realize, but it's in daily effective use in a way that's keeping major engineering projects on track despite the need for social distancing. Now that's great for keeping the economy moving during the pandemic, but it has major implications for the way we work in the future too. The argument against using VR and AR tools for serious engineering work has been that the inability to collaborate in person and potentially handle functional prototypes and parts restricts the true collaboration in engineering design and problem solving. Now, Firms active in the development of virtual and augmented solutions have argued against this for years, but old habits die hard. Now out of necessity, engineering firms have discovered that online collaboration can work and work well, particularly if the visual environment is enhanced. What do we mean by enhanced? Well, the ability to virtually pick up, rotate, and even walk through a rendering has well, proven to be highly effective in understanding how complex designs work, and major applications in areas like defense, automotive, and aerospace while well, they're actively using this technology pre-COVID. But in true hybrid strategy, the personnel came to the VR, often donning headsets at the workstation and collaborating later on revisions and project management in the conference room. Is it really such a large step to decentralize the entire process? Rupinder's analysis suggests that what's happening now during COVID is really a rehash of a phenomenon seen at the birth of the telephone, for example. When it debuted in the 19th century, business users were, of course, the first to adopt the technology, and they would commonly send a messenger to alert telephone users that a caller would be ringing shortly. Now, this sounds crazy, but it makes sense within the context of a written message world transitioning to electronic communications. Similarly, a group of engineers sharing an Ethernet connection within a design office, then meeting around the water cooler in the conference room, well, it's much the same. It's simply not that big a step to virtualize the entire process. And the technology has applications beyond the design process as well. On the shop floor, training is now delivered effectively by both virtual and augmented reality and can take place literally on the assembly line. For large multinational corporations, the benefits are self-evident. Imagine a single training syllabus delivered from a central point that brings engineering managers and production personnel up to speed with current design and process revisions everywhere at the same time. Or a millwright looking for interchange for an obsolete pillow block assembly, While that individual may connect with his peers at other company operations or with vendor personnel at the bearing supply house or even a bearing manufacturer to find a solution. Use cases are probably endless, but in the post-COVID world, the final driver will be the inevitable cost. Apple, for example, spends $150 million a year in airfare for personnel. Travel is a significant cost, and that leaves serious budget possibilities for implementation of even sophisticated AR and VR solutions. Check out the interviews for more information on this fast-evolving and very timely technology. Wind power has been around a long time, centuries in fact, and it delivers power for everything from milling corn to generating grid-scale current. Now, in this age of global warming, electricity generation is naturally where the action is. And unlike solar, wind power operates by scaling laws that favor large turbines, feeding power at grid-level economies of scale. Now, dispatch reliability, however, it's an issue. There are very few locations where the wind blows steadily and consistently, so storage devices have been under investigation for years. Batteries, as used with photovoltaic technology, well, they're an option, but there are others. Tom Lombardo has a story this week about another way to store that energy by converting it into hydrogen fuel. Siemens developed a megawatt-scale electrolyzer and is signed to deal with Chinese authorities to power Beijing's public transportation systems with the resulting green hydrogen. The plan is both an Olympics-driven production reduction measure and part of that nation's overall plan to decarbonize their economy. Now, Tom outlines the various ways hydrogen can be integrated into the global economy to replace fossil fuels and notes that proton exchange membrane technologies is changing electrolysis from laboratory curiosity to a scalable system that can operate with current from a number of different sources, both large and small. And on the other hand, he notes that hydrogen is not limited to use as a reactant for fuel cells and electric propulsion. Gas turbines and even internal combustion engines can be run on hydrogen gas and the gas can be burned to provide process heat for industry, all with zero carbon emissions. Why not just use batteries? Well, there are several reasons to consider hydrogen as a storage medium. It can be made anywhere that current is available and the primary working fluid for electrolysis is water. The resulting hydrogen gas can be handled using existing technology and can even be mixed with natural gas for distribution in the existing global pipeline network. And it's safer than most people realize. Although it is combustible in air in the correct concentration, hydrogen gas is lighter than air and it won't pool in low-lying areas. But perhaps the biggest benefit to hydrogen-based systems is the ability to fuel vehicles at speeds almost as fast as tanking up with gasoline or diesel. Now, fast charging is notoriously hard on electric vehicle batteries, and range remains a serious issue for public acceptance of EVs for personal automotive use. For trucks and buses, the limited range and slow recharge times of EVs are so far a disadvantage, one that stored hydrogen can address either as a fuel for heat engines directly or run through a fuel cell to power electric motors. of hydrogen used today is used in industrial processes, with major demand coming from the chemical, fertilizer, and plastics industries. Steelmaking is another big industry with big potential for hydrogen. Reduction of iron ore and blast furnaces requires massive amounts of coke, and as a CO2 source, steelmaking represents 7% of all global emissions. Hydrogen is well-suited to this task, and the other byproduct of electrolysis, oxygen is also a process gas used heavily in steelmaking. For that industry, there are other potential impacts of the switch to hydrogen. Huge amounts of coal are necessary for coking ovens, and as a result, major steelworks have traditionally been located on waterways where that coal can be shipped or barged to the furnaces. The ability to pipeline hydrogen gas could theoretically make it possible to locate primary steelmaking closer to the source of the raw material, iron ore, potentially reducing costs considerably. Elimination of the coking process itself would be a major cost-saver for the industry and might allow primary steelmaking to downsize into operations more like the electric arc mini-mills that make much of America's specialty steels today. Now, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory determined that batteries aren't cost-effective for power delivery at more than 12 hours at a stretch. Both compressed air and pumped hydro storage outperform batteries, but both are costly. When it comes to discharge duration, capacity and versatility, hydrogen has a lot going for it. But with the ongoing improvements in battery technology, well, will they win the day? We'll be watching and we'll let you know. That wraps up this episode. Thanks for tuning in to today's edition of This Week in Engineering.